welcome to the Warren Fintech Podcast, the leading podcast on fintech and the future of financial services. I'm your host, Josh Benediva, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Itzi Cohen, the co-founder and CEO of PayZen, a fintech company that is revolutionizing healthcare financing. PayZen uses AI and machine learning to offer personalized payment plans for patients, providers, and payers, making healthcare more accessible and affordable. Itzik is a serial entrepreneur and a tech veteran with experience in lending, healthcare lending, and debt settlement. He has a degree from Tel Aviv University and is passionate about building life-improving technology and solving industry-wide challenges. In this episode, we will talk about his entrepreneurial journey, his insights into building PayZen, the opportunities and challenges of fintech and healthcare, and his vision for the future of PayZen, machine learning, and more. Stay tuned for an exciting and informative conversation with Itzik Cohen of PayZen. And with that, a warm welcome to Itzi Cohen from PayZen. Well, it's great to have you here. I think for the sake of our, our listeners, uh, so Itzi, it's not every day that we have a professional basketball player. Itzi, in, in his heyday, was a professional basketball player in the EuroLeague. Yeah, it's, uh, well, first of all, for an Israeli, I'm quite tall, 6'8", uh, or 2 meter 4 uh, for the metric system. Um, you know, um, played basketball, um, as a young um, teenager and uh, was quite good at it. Um, I played for, you know, uh, if people know uh, European basketball, Maccabi Tel Aviv, who was uh, yeah, really champion kind of, um, for many years. Um, played in the EuroLeague uh, against um, European uh, teams and also played in the Israeli national team in several European championships. I think that... Um, well, like, obviously, it's a great uh, experience as a young man to, um, you know, experience professional sports and being a professional athlete in team. But I think that uh, looking back today at uh, what basketball gave me, besides uh, lots of travel and um, um, un, you know, unparalleled experience, is you know, I'm realizing how important it is to take all the strengths and the things you learn as a basketball player or as a professional athlete, especially in team sport, into the corporate world. And I feel like um, people who did well in um, as, professional, as professional athletes will do really well in a, in a corporate setting as well because people know how to play as a team. People know how um, to cooperate while uh, maintaining their own individual progress and uh, taking care of um, their own. Uh, professional career so it's kind of an interesting balance of uh, promoting yourself while taking care of a team rather than just um, thinking about yourself also there's a coach you know if I'm seeing myself as a CEO now uh, as the coach of the team I'm, look, I'm looking at it in a very uh, similar way you have a bench you have different roles you want to have a balanced team uh, especially on the C-suite so um, I think that a lot of the uh, people who it gives you discipline it gives you the uh, understanding of what hard work means. So I think that, um, you know, um, professional athletes can do really well in the corporate world. And I can see uh, I can see that, uh, especially about myself, I mean, it gave me a lot of tools. Were you a natural leader? Were you always the leader of the team? Go into it. I was, uh, as a, being 68 uh, when I was already 14, quite frankly. So, you know, I was quite tall when I was 14. You know, um, I was hard not to notice, but uh, personally, I was uh, quite shy. And I think that uh, it took me a few years to kind of find my natural uh, place in the world and uh, my voice and my strength. And um, 
Yeah, so I did become uh, a team leader in many ways, but um, it wasn't um, on day one. After so it's something that I kind of had to get into and um, be comfortable with. Awesome. So take me take me through the story. Young Itzik uh, is a professional basketball player in the Euro League, and then somehow finds himself in Silicon Valley, working in the hut. How do, how does that transition happen? So you know. Uh, so like I said, I mean, I um, I was always good in, uh, with computers and technology as a teenager. I mean, back then, technology, I mean, my first computer was a Commodore 64. And, uh, you know, I, I graduated to other uh, PCs, but um, I was always fascinated with it. I was always good at it. I, I, I taught myself to program uh, at a very young age and, um, you know, uh, got into the market in a way, um, operated Again, I'm dating myself because I'm, I'm 54, but, um, you know, um, I had a BBS. If you know what that is, back then, before the internet uh, existed, there were some uh, dial-up services. People can kind of um, dial in and exchange ideas, chat, and um, do all kinds of things on a bulletin board, in a way. Uh, so I was pretty active uh, in the scene in a, in a pretty small country. And, uh, yeah, so uh, in the early 90s, you know, the internet started to become a thing. And that was kind of towards the, I was in my mid-20s. Quite frankly, I was getting a little bored with basketball. It was uh, it was great. It was um, a good income and a uh, very comfortable life. But uh, I was looking for my next challenge. And um, I was fortunate enough to join um, the first ISP in Israel. Uh, I did that again with dial-up. Um, I, uh, I joined them. Uh, to work part-time because they, I had my basketball duties still. I liked it so much that I decided to start phasing out my basketball uh, and start phasing in my technology um, <coughs> roles. And um, very quickly, I realized that more than my technology background, I was pretty good, pretty good in sales. So I uh, used my technology background and uh, engineering background to be able to be a better sales guy, quite frankly, come up, coming up with solutions that um, maybe the average sales guy couldn't um, come up with at the time. And, you know, after a couple of years over there in 96, you know, unlike today where everything is connected and everybody can work from anywhere in Zoom, um, back then, if you wanted to do something, you needed to be in a certain geography. And everything was happening in Silicon Valley. And as somebody who really wanted to be in the you know, uh, in the sausage factory, in a way, right? Uh, you wanted to be where the sausage is being made. I um, made it a, a goal of mine to come here to Silicon Valley, to, to, to the Bay Area, and uh, get involved. And 25 years later, here we go, right? So um, it was a kind of an evolution. I mean, I, I took it step by step from basketball, chasing out basketball very slowly into kind of a local scene in Israel. And then from then, um, I made it to the U.S. And again, even when I came to the U.S., I was very fortunate to be at the right place at the right time. Obviously, the dot-com was not uh, as positive for everyone. Um, but I was one of the fortunate ones that um, was in a very successful company that went public and actually had a really good business, um, WebEx Communications. I was one of the early guys over there. And, um, <clears throat> you know, in 2000, we went public. And... Um, yeah, eventually we sold the company to Cisco in 2007. So 
So take me through the early days of, of WebEx and, you know, you've done a lot of startups since then. Take me through what you, what your main takeaways were in terms of learning how to build and scale a company. Cause you, you were on the founding, one of the really early teammates there. Um, what were some of your main takeaways, the main lessons that you took away from that, that experience in terms of building and scaling a company? So first of all, you know, I was, uh, fortunate to have, uh, the, be- you know, uh, uh, courtside seats to uh, how, how things are being done, right? And the stations that are being made at the top level, because it was, um, again, I was very fortunate to have um, the, the CEO of the company is my mentor, Sue He's a, a, a brilliant guy that um, taught me a lot. Uh, we spent a lot of time together. Obviously, it was a very intense type of um, environment where we worked basically all day and all night. <laughs> we're we were spending a lot of time together and I, you know, I could see how the struggles, first of all, it wasn't easy. Uh, and back then, you know, um, you know, things weren't as, it wasn't easy to raise money. The company had, um, I remember one meeting where, you know, at the time, some, some investor told us, well, you're trying to raise money for something that Microsoft gives away for free. It was talking about net meeting. You sure remember net meeting, um, and nobody uses. And, you know, it, it, was really, it was really hard for us to raise money. But, you know, I think one of the things that I took away from um, this whole experience is that, you know, don't drink the Kool-Aid. And I think that this is what saved Payson today, and that's why we're so successful, is that there was a similar bubble era, if you, if you can kind of make the, make the parallel, right? I mean, valuations and craziness uh, with no real income or no real revenue was pre- were prevalent back then as well. And um, again, it was really insane when it comes to how big the bubble got. Uh, but, you know, WebEx never kind of drank that cooler. We, we were very conservative how we spent money, revenues, you know, um, sticking to fundamentals of business and making sure that we have our con- control over our destiny when it comes to our financial future. And quite frankly, that's why I kind of saved the company because we had a really good foundation. If I'm fast forwarding now as a CEO of Payson, um, you know, 2020, 2021 were crazy years for valuations and very tempting for a lot of CEOs to take crazy valuations and tons of money. But what people with that experience don't realize is that it's a trap. Right? I mean, it's a trap because, you know, when you don't have a good foundation and you're not sticking to milestone-based funding, which basically, you know, get some funding, get some milestone done, and then based on those milestones, go get the next round. And we stuck to these fundamentals. My, me and my co-founders are very conservative in the way we run a business. So, you know, going back to, to the WebEx days, I mean, it taught me everything that I know about how to lead, the struggles of what, uh, what it takes to lead, and, you know, the highs and the lows, right? It's not easy. It's not a straight line, no matter what people tell you, right? So it's uh, <laughs> there's a lot of, um, you know, um, creativity and solutions uh, that you need to come up with to problems. And there's problems. They're ultimately going to be problems for every company. I mean, doesn't matter what PR you read. I mean, behind the scenes, if you peel the layers, every company has problems that they need to solve. So that that's what it taught me. I mean, that that, that uh, mentorship and that, um, like I said, courtside uh, view of how to build a company from scratch to become a public company and a very successful company, multi-billion-dollar company, um, was uh, the best thing for me. 
that's amazing. Such an amazing experience. So interesting to hear. So, you know, I've, I've had a similar thought process of thinking, you know, these conservative companies are really doing it the right way because these companies are raising at super high valuations. You're never going to meet, meet those expectations. Like the underlying business fundamentals is what has to guide the valuation, not the market flows, ebbs and flows. Technically, how does that work? Like, are you, are you being offered valuation? You're saying, no, this is what the valuation should be. Are you like, literally, what are you doing as a founder to make sure that the business fundamentals are matching how your fundraising strategy and so forth? Well, it's, it's about, uh, it's a balance, right? So obviously if somebody is offering you an amazing valuation for your company, it's hard to say no. So I can understand why people do it. Uh, nobody wants to get deluded. And, uh, obviously that's, uh, one of the leading reasons for that, but and of course, VCs, the, the existing VCs on your cap table, they're definitely going to push you to get that valuation because they can mark up their book, right? So it kind of works for a lot of people, but it only works if your business fundamentals actually can, can support it, right? Essentially, you know, what kind of multiple are you going to actually take on this company? Right? Can, you, can you actually catch up? You know, can your revenues and business fundamentals catch up to that valuation at some point? And how long will it take? And um, now the current, um, you know, when you have a lot of money, you're expected also to burn a lot of money, right? So, you know, uh, what kind of runway are you giving yourself to actually catch uh, catch up with um, if, if you're not ready? So I think that, look, if you have really a really good, healthy business that's uh, beyond product market fit, that you're now in scaling mode and, uh, you know, um, working on improving go-to-market and scaling all the operation, then... Sure, I mean you can you can justify a very high valuation for it. I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. I'm gonna consider it too. But if you don't have all the fundamentals there and you have a lot to figure out, it can be a trap that can really come and bite you, uh, you nowhere. So, and it's kind of um you're you're playing you're playing a, a game where when the bubble bursts, it's uh, you know you're you're out of you're out of a seat, right? So. Yeah. You're going to have to either, you know, fire a bunch of people, which is awful for culture and, um, you know, maintaining your momentum in the company, or take a down round, which is also devastating to a lot of your your shareholders. So it's just about, you know, my advice is always going to be take care of the business fundamentals. Are you ready for another big round? What are you going to use this round for? Is your business, did you prove the milestones you kind of, Putting fight of yourself and are you taking, you know, the money with some kind of a, it's going to kind of have a high valuation, but don't make it ridiculous, right? I mean, it's just, it's just a trap that you're, you're putting yourself into that, you know, proven to be very risky. Uh, and um, we see what's going on, in it, but there's a lot of, what are they called? Uh, zombie corns right now? I mean, yeah, yeah, the unicorn on paper, but um I don't know what the numbers are, but I, I, I'm hearing there's quite a quite a lot of them out there. Yeah, yeah, totally. So taking us back to your to your early career, so you so WebEx gets sold to Cisco, then you find yourself in Silicon Valley, and you end up starting ClipSync, right? That was your next step. Take me through the the beginning story of ClipSync. How did you end up starting it, and and kind of your thesis and then started the company? ClipSync was um, interesting because we always thought. If you think about uh, WebEx, I mean, we were basically doing live interaction over business a business setting, right? A meeting. We always we always had um, 
the desire to do something for consumers. But, you know, our company has DNA, and we were kind of an enterprise sales company, and uh, we, we, we weren't good at doing anything that we would be for consumers. So I thought the idea, and, you know, back then, there was a lot, there was a lot more video being streamed, and YouTube just got sold to, um, to, to Google, and more and more video was starting to stream. And I thought, you know, that opens up the opportunity to, for people to watch videos together, interact live, uh, vote, um, and do all kinds of interesting things while they watch videos. Way ahead of our time, by the way, because only now you can see a lot of uh, watch parties and different types of um, uh, solutions like that. Um, so we, we obviously we didn't have content; we were technologists, right? So we developed a technology platform that allows content creators to stream their videos in an interactive way to for multiple for multiple people. To essentially create those watch parties and created all kinds of series of uh, interactive tools like voting and sentiment meters. And we did very well, really well in the 2008 elections, if you recall. It was the first ones that, um, you know, CNN and others, which we had to deal with, um, you know, were kind of using sentiment meters to kind of show what people, in, during the debates, what people feel using voting live. You know, it was great, but um, the outcome wasn't as positive as I wanted for the company because. At the end of the day, in the media game, if you don't have if you don't have content, I mean your valuation is never going to get to where you want uh, to to what you expect. So I decided to basically uh, sell the company. It wasn't uh, an amazing outcome, but um, return money for investors, I guess. So, what were your takeaways? What were some of your lessons from that experience in contrast to, to WebEx? Mm. Well, first time CEO, right? So that was the first time I was a CEO after WebEx. I thought I learned a lot, but um, I learned a lot about how to be a CEO of WebEx. I, I, then I saw the CEO of WebEx. Uh, you know, Clipsync needed a different CEO, uh, different business, different uh, demands in the business. I do learn. Look, I mean, you make a ton of mistakes. And when it comes to, I think that the most consistent mistake a lot of CEOs make is hiring, right? You, you, you're, you're, it's very hard to hire the right team. And, um, you know, I think that, um, that was, uh, well, why the that I always, um, wanted to improve, right, in my, in my, in my career. And I think that I, I got better at it. I and mean, obviously, it's still, it's still kind of a, you're taking a chance, uh, in many, many ways. But, um, it, it was the first time seeing your job. Uh, I was, um, I thought I knew a lot more than uh, I did, and um, it was very humbling. Let's put it this way: um, yeah. I had good investors, uh, very loyal investors who believed um, in the business. I had a co-founder cool that uh, believed in the business. Again, we weren't able to create this repeating multi-billion-dollar business that we thought it could be. And when we realized that the business is never going to get there, we just started to sell because you know. It's also kind of a time value of money, essentially. If you don't think the outcome is going to be a certain way, um, you know, for an entrepreneur like me, it's always going to be okay. If this is not going to be it, then I need to yeah. be responsible, return money to investors, and move on to the next thing. So yeah. that's, um, that's what I so, so a lot of us listening are, are want to be founders, want to be VCs, 
uh, wannabe managers, what are some of the trick that tricks or tips that you have for hiring that you that you took away that you said, hey, this is a problem area for me at at this point in time in my life. Now this is what I'm going to do now to be better at. How what are, what are some things that we can learn from you? Look, so obviously, the more you do in your life, the more you work with people that you can call on to, right? And I, w- I would say that uh, having that uh, world deck of people you work with that want to work with you in the future or work with you before is, is a gift because essentially, if it's somebody you never worked with, think about what you're trying to do here. You're trying to predict the future based on uh, someone's past, right? And based on a conversation or several conversations with someone, so I, w- I would say that um, hiring is never more than sixty forty. I mean, only sixty percent of hiring actually turned out to be okay or, or a good fit. So I would say that um, you know there are no tips here because um, there's no magic solution here. I think that um, for me. The, the, the best fit I um, try to find is someone's character. First of all, you're a good fit culturally to the company. You know, because resumes are, you know, they, you, you can go to someone's LinkedIn and see, if, you know, what they did made sense for your business. But I'm trying to understand what's, what's the fire in your belly? Where do you want to be? You know, are you going to be a good cultural fit? You know, I'm... For example, I mean, I mean, I'm, it's might might be a kind of the wrong question to ask somebody, but you know, I'm asking people questions that I feel, based on my experience, would be very important. So I'm very direct about it. For example, I'm asking someone, you know, how important is work-life balance for you? You know, I mean, these are not questions that a lot of people ask these days, but uh, I do ask it because I feel like, hey, if you want to work for a startup and you're looking for work-life balance. You either have a misguided expectations about what a startup life is, or you should work somewhere else because this is not the right place for you. It's very intense, and it, it takes a lot of effort to kind of um, you know um, be successful there. And we need people who are dedicated to 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 work, right? So it's also about how hard are you willing to work. This is kind of the um, especially for yo- for younger employees of the company what i try to assess is do you really want it do you really want it obviously you went to the right schools so you had to be competitive there but you know you'll need to continue kind of pushing really hard and stressing yourself if you want to kind of make it in this business because it's not easy if you're not working you know i think as an entrepreneur 50 60 hours a week i mean you're doing something wrong i mean that's what it takes it's uh it's a lot of work yeah, that's I love that. I love that attitude. I mean, I've definitely I've seen the contrast personally going from a startup to now. You know, Kaysen is doing TEDx this year, right? So we're growing ten times in one year. You know, I'm sure that by the time we get to a certain size, this is why when you grow and become a bigger company, your growth slows down, and obviously the expectations from employees are different, and there's more structure. But right now, it's about you know move as fast as you can. It, our advantage is not size. Our advantage is speed, being fluid, changing on a dime, things that companies that are big cannot do, right? So uh, that's, 
use your advantage rather than play the game of a big corporation because you're never going to win, right? So that, that, that's, that's kind of how I'm looking at it. Anyway, yeah. sorry. No, yeah, I love, I love that. Um, so, okay, so I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about Payzen because Payzen is an awesome company. Yeah, so, so Payzen is um, interesting because um, the idea for Payzen started a, a long time ago, actually. Um, so in 2014, I joined Prosper Marketplace, one of the early marketplace lenders. You know, it was basically us and Lending Club at the time that were the biggest. And, um, you know, we learned a lot about fintech. There was kind of fintech 1.0, right? I mean, it was kind of the beginning of fintech. It used to be called peer-to-peer lending, then it become, became marketplace lending. But at the end of the day, we were expanding credit opportunity for a lot of individuals in the United States because of the ways we were underwriting and um, you know, servicing and uh, originating credit and personal loans. One of the things that I noticed, uh, I was chief business officer at the company. My co-founder, Tobias, uh, you know, uh, joined the company as uh, head of corporate development and strategy. So naturally, we worked really well together. One of the things we noticed is that, first of all, the one of the biggest re- or fastest growing reasons for me- for person alone in the U.S. was medical debt, to cover medical debt. So that was interesting. Um, we looked into it. We wanted to expand our business. We were mostly doing debt consolidation type loans at the time. So people were taking a bunch of credit card debt and putting it into one simple loan. But um, we really liked two other verticals. We liked the home improvement lending business, and we really liked the medical lending business. We ended up acquiring a company called American Healthcare Lending. We made it uh, Prosper Healthcare Lending, and um, that PNL rolled up to my PNL, and we win the company. Again, we noticed at the time we were competing more with companies like Care Credit, and we were financing elective procedures. But when you look at a large data set in the United States of, of healthcare uh, data, you realize the problem is not in the elective side. The problem is in non-elective. People with insurance, with jobs, because of the way healthcare is being structured right now, or health plans are structured, have high deductibles. Essentially, uh, last year, an average family had to spend out of pocket within, after insurance about $3,500 for, for, for an average family in the United wow. States. Many people cannot afford it. Right? I mean, essentially, you're, 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 there's a, a financial barrier between people who have jobs and insurance uh, from, to their care, right? Uh, not not only theirs, their kids, right, or their their spouses. So um, we we saw that problem, but we just couldn't really operate on it under Prosper because again, DNA of the company was not such that it was an enterprise. We couldn't sell to medical providers. We were kind of um, more of a consumer play. Uh, I'm fast forwarding a little bit. In 2016, I left Prosper and started Beyond Finance, which is now. Um, um, one of the more successful debt settlement companies in the United States. And again, the idea was how do we transform debt settlement from uh, a very manual process and how do we disrupt that business with technology? And again, Beyond Finance is doing great. It's a wonderful company. I noticed another thing, uh, another data point that led me to Payson was that the fastest growing type of debt we were enrolling in, in Beyond Finance was medical debt. Again, so people were struggling with a ton of medical debt. So when I came back to San Francisco after uh, I left Beyond Finance, um, the company um, you know, I did really well. There was 
a fantastic uh, deal for me. But, um, you know, um, I um, called to BS, who was still at Prosper, and said, hey, that thing with uh, medical lending, this is a massive opportunity. Just to give you a sense uh, of the, uh, the market size, what hospitals are billing patients every year, okay, is growing at 15% a year, and last year it was $420 billion. Only 20% of it is being collected. Think about it. Number one re- reason for non-payment is lack of payment options. So what we said, you know, hey, we can help now. The idea, if you change the lens to the hospitals or the, or, or the medical providers, they're struggling too. They have they have huge cash flow issues. Their costs are, are rising. The payers or the insurance companies are not paying them enough. Patients are not they can't collect from patients. So there's a huge cash flow issue for the providers as well, and they need to run their business. It's an essential business. So. What Payson is doing is starting, okay, we're going to develop a product that is being sold to medical providers and automatically being offered to their, all their patients, but basically guarantees 100% of patients a way to pay their medical bill. So we don't say no to anyone, which is a part of our North Star. The other thing is we never uh, charge interest or fees from the patients. We don't believe in interest um, in, uh, in that particular use case, for example, because we just don't think that somebody who really want to pay their bill but just want to pay it over time needs to get into a bigger debt of interest because they want to pay it over time. We just don't think it's the right thing to do. By the way, most hospitals agree with that. Uh, that you know you shouldn't pay, you shouldn't um, um, charge interest. So we we say it's an enterprise type sale. We integrate with the medical providers systems. We get a flow of data, which is fantastic. We get a ton of data from the provider. We enrich that data with medical, with our financial uh, data. So we, we get a really good view of their patients. And we offer the right patients a great way to pay their medical bills over time with no interest in an automatic way. Like I said, 100% approval. And we finance these assets to the provider. So the provider gets cash flow on day one, you know, with a discount, of course, that is based on risk. But we can price any risk, right? Essentially, so... If you would um, enroll into a payment plan, we would think that you're no risk and we would pay the hospital 90 cents a dollar. If somebody was a high risk, we would pay 60 cents a dollar, but it doesn't really matter. They get the money now. They have no cost of collecting. There's no bad debt. Uh, you know, uh, they don't have to keep it on their books. Zero days of AR and it's fully automated. They don't have any staff managing and it's fully automated. It's just getting, they're getting a lot more cash flow. So hospitals love it. Like I said, we we have a lot more demand than uh, being able to move this year. So we're doing about a 10x growth uh, in 2023. Wow. And uh, we, now we have new products that are coming out and are very exciting in the form of a, a access card that we can give patients to start paying for longer care cycles. So over time, they can actually add more and more um, bills to that um to their payment plan. So it's not just one payment plan that you can pay for or one bill. You can actually pay for multiple bills over time. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's it's one of those cases where you're doing well by doing good. I mean, reading the patient testimonials about how we saved their lives and took the stress away from their life and they couldn't get medical care because they couldn't afford it. And now, you know, we... It was so easy, so affordable, and um, it's just, it's a fantastic, uh, feel-good business. 
let me take it a little back a little bit. So when you're first starting Payzen, what were some of the things that you thought about in terms of, hey, here's my previous experiences at WebEx, at ClipSync, at Beyond Finance. How do I want to do this differently? How do I want to do this to say, what were some of your main tenants of saying, this is one I want to keep the same, this is one I want to do differently? So let's, let's kind of uh, go back. We started the company at the end of 2019. So literally four months after we started the company, COVID hit, right? So you know, just try to imagine, I mean, you're trying to sell to medical providers who are basically shutting down. Uh, nobody could enter hospitals. Nobody could talk to them. Um, you know, it was kind of a weird place to be. I mean, we were trying to develop a product and medical providers are basically swamp, swamped with um, with COVID cases and uh, nobody could enter hospitals without a good reason. And, um, you know, it was terrible. You couldn't travel. So, you know, we really needed to... Um, so, we we were very fortunate to get amazing advisors on the, into the company. Uh, people from the healthcare industry who became advisors. Without those advisors early on, uh, I would be the first to admit, I had no idea about healthcare. I knew about technology. I knew about financial services and fintech. But healthcare is a very unique business. And if you don't know the lingo and how it works and the complexity of how how complex um, uh, this business is, I mean, you would... Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to learn. So I literally had a crash course with all of our advice, advisors about what do you call this and what do you, I mean, literally, we didn't know. I mean, we had to learn very fast. Uh, I think that um, the strategy there was, okay, now that we have, uh, I think, a good proof of concept, we need to find a partner that will be our first customer. And uh, let's not go full scale and start setting a product. Let's focus on one health system that would be able to innovate with us, be patient with us, so we can develop the product together with them. And we did find one. Uh, it's a system called Geisinger. It's uh, one of the top 10 health systems in the United States. We were very fortunate that their team has been very forward-looking, uh, very uh, innovative. They, saw the pro- they see the problem that we were trying to solve, and um, played with us. Without that experience, we could not have gotten uh, product market fit as well as we did. That accelerated a bunch of things. So, what I was trying to do uh, strategically is to sh- shortcut a lot of cycles by finding the right partners, whether it's the right advisors or whether it's the right first customer who would, again, be patient and um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of founders asking me, hey, you know, should I give warrants to my first customer if they ask for it? The answer is absolutely yes. If if you get value out of it, and if you if if they if they make your product better because they, they really innovate and you can kind of go, it's like, it's like a lab. It's like a real life real life lab. You you it's it's uh, irreplaceable when it comes to um in the a sandbox you can play in the real world that um, you would never have a chance uh, to do it with that with a real cust- a real paying customer, right? So uh, we were very fortunate that we were able to, we were able to find those partners to uh, around the company and made us who we are. And I think that the other thing I would say that um, 
we're successful here is we maintain our North Star, meaning the foundation of the company of what we will and will not do. For example, we will never charge interest. We'll always say yes to everyone who wants to pay their bill. Meaning we're never going to decline someone who wants to pay their bill. Those fundamental uh, kind of mission-driven values that the company have will never change. And I think that staying very true to that, you know, um, our customers, our employees, everybody understands that, you know, this is the focus. This is where we cannot deviate from that, the, the lanes that we kind of agreed on. And the, the, I think it's a part of our success, this culture. That's awesome. I was actually just going to ask, how did you, what tips would you give to founders about bringing on new partners and, and advisors? And it sounds like, I mean, the war, the warrants issue is it's really interesting. And I think that's, uh, that's a big value. It's a big, yeah, because, be, yeah, because it, it, it's, it aligns motivations together. I mean, uh, they're very motivated to help you do well because they'll do well. So it's, um, it works. Uh, advisors, look, I mean, we had all kinds of advisors. Most of them worked out. Some of them didn't. And there were no longer advisors. But uh, and, and sometimes advisors are good for a particular period of time. Right. And then the company has different needs. So you have to kind of, uh, again, it's like, it's like having a C-suite. I mean, the bench is changing based on the needs of the company. Again, I'm, I'm trying to be a coach here. If you're, if you're in a basketball game and you're looking at what your tool set is i mean for a given uh season or game you have to play the right um players yeah different and a certain strategy organizationally how do you how do you build product like the ask access cards was that your idea and and they kind of streamlined out or was it some product manager or some engineer or, or customer service person was like hey you know this is a great idea we should do access cards and then kind of follow it up to you so I believe that um, for for company of this for this product, the founders have to lead the product up to a certain point. Actually, we're now uh, upgrading our executive product executive uh, you know leadership from kind of being founder led to actually having an executive in place because we're ready for it now. Because I think that uh, we have, we've seen all the iterations of the product in the company and we learned so much. It's much easier for us as founders to really connect the dots for the product and have a really good gut feel to what is right, what is not, what's going to work, what's not going to work. We're very plugged into the business. And I would say the same thing is with sales. Um, we only now recently, um, you know, started thinking about a, a sales leader because me and my co-founder Tobias, for example, um, were leading uh, sales because I believe I'm never going to change the role of being the number one sales, sales guy for the company. It doesn't matter how big we're going to be. I'm always going to be selling, right? Whether it's selling to investors or selling to medical providers, I'm always going to be selling patients. But you really don't know what kind of leader you need if you don't do it. So now you know, what, what am I looking for in a sales leader? What am I looking for in a product leader? I think that product and go-to-market are the two things that you really need to do yourself before you before you hire an executive to do it. And I, for example, made a mistake of, because of I, I, some, you know, a personal example, I, um, 
I thought that I needed to, to find somebody from healthcare who sold to medical providers um, much earlier, about three years ago. I thought I need to hire an executive, and I started a search and hired this guy. And, you know, turns out that uh, it didn't work out because I didn't know what I needed at the time, right? It's because I needed to do it more in order to learn what I need before I can hire that person. So, um, you know, now we're ready, but uh, I wasn't ready two years ago, for example. We need to do this before you can kind of hire somebody else, somebody else to do this job. So, so I've, been, I've been asking a lot of questions recently to, to CEOs and founders about organizational structure. So, so literally how it's set up is, sounds like there are, let's say, let's call it sales teams, product teams, because Payson is big enough to where there probably are teams for each of these verticals, right? So you have sales teams and product teams that they all kind of report to you in time. Yeah. Is, is that how it works? Yeah, I mean, we have, um, you know, Tobias is the COO, so he runs operations and go to market. I run everything else. And, um, you know, we, uh, we have a chief credit officer for a company like us. You know, um, credit is one of the most important things. You know, so we hired um, an amazing chief credit officer from Goldman Sachs who was uh, a part of the leadership that ran Marcus Loans and uh, the Apple Card uh, credit and decisioning uh, science by uh, those products. And um, so we are you know, one of the first hires we had. We have, um, you know, a, a, the third co-founder, Ariel Rosenthal, who is in Tel Aviv. Uh, we have a pretty large engineering team in Tel Aviv as well, about 30 people. So, you know, um, we... Um, we're growing very fast, but um, it's now time to expand the bench, right, of executives. And yeah. not, I can tell you now that after three and a half years of doing this, it's time to do it, to expand. That's, that's, that's really interesting to hear how you kind of had this intuition for, for what's... Also, I mean, let's not forget another thing. I mean, um, you know, leadership is expensive, right? So we also didn't want i mean to be blunt we didn't want to uh, overspend at a time of uncertainty and you know last year was kind of an uncertain year and uh, the bubble burst on a lot of people we were kind of careful like about timing of when to do those things obviously with the success we have we we feel very comfortable but um you know try to stay as disciplined as we were always we're not going to change that so we try to go milestone based on milestones okay now we're ready for a CFO. Now we're ready for a CPO. Now we're ready for other things. So we just we try we're trying to be um, rigorous about those uh, the timing of things. Are there any problems lying around today? Kind of like how when you were at uh, Prosper, where you're like, oh, there's this medical problem, medical lending problem. I wish I could go solve it. Is there anything out there today that you're like, mm, I wish I could, I wish I could go do this, or I wish someone goes and does this? Yeah, we're trying to improve and shorten our sales cycle. I mean, selling to medical providers is a long is a long sale. I was warned before I entered the business that it's going to be long, and it's true. It is a, a long process. Where we got really good at it, saying uh, our sales velocity is improving and increasing, but uh, I think we can even do better than that. And um, that's what we're focusing on right now. So uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, Focus or of product in the implementations of the product, and of course our sales sales cycles and sales operations. So those things are 
things that I'm trying to in, uh, improve. Um, like I said, it's a very complex business, right? Operationally, working with um, medical providers um, is, is not easy, but we made it as easy as possible so far, but uh, I think we can do better. So that's one thing that's on my mind. And of course, you know, we're thinking about, um, you know, next year already, next year's products and growth. And we have a very unique data set of EHR data and financial data. And we have a lot of performance data and starting to use our machine learning models uh, and AI to take everything we do on and put it on steroids even more is something that um, I'm not ready to speak about yet. But um, in Q1, Q2 next year is going to be um, quite exciting for us. You know, I, I don't think I sent you the questions, but I feel like I've sent you the questions because that was literally exactly what I was going to ask um, about the ML models. And, and because, I mean, it does sound like you have this very enriched data set uh that's data set and and it definitely sounds like it is and it it definitely sounds like a flywheel that probably one of the strongest modes that pays can build is like these ml models these really highly well-trained models on josh is spot on i mean you're absolutely right i mean i would i would categorize our data as extremely unique and you really can't buy it anywhere right so yeah. And it's uh, very powerful when it comes to the impact that it uh, delivers. So we use machine learning already, obviously, to inform our own models and disappoint um, dynamic risk pricing. Obviously, that it helps us pay provide and make the providers more. But trying to include more data sources in our, our own performance data into this and come up with a solution. Again, I'm not ready to really talk about it yet, but... Um, it's really exciting. I've seen that proof of concept already, and it's um, pretty awesome. To be a fly in the wall in, in some of those meetings. So that, <laughs> that's so cool. Uh, it's like a well, you're, side you're, 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 you're invited to come and join us after you sign in. All right. I guess we can't publish that part on the podcast. Um, exactly. Cool. Awesome. So I've, I've been doing this thing uh, called the Lightning Round with the Warren Fintech Podcast. I'm starting it off cool. a little bit. So... Uh, so I'm curious, short answer, short questions, short answers. Um, and that will end us here at the, pod, the podcast because we've been going a little bit. Who is your favorite basketball player? I know you're a big Golden Knights fan, or not Golden Knights, uh, the Golden uh, Spurs. For, for me, it's, your, it's Jordan, always be Jordan. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Type book recommendations. Wow. So many of them. Sapiens? You're the second person on the podcast who's given Sapiens by the way. Okay. Um, top advice for an individual who's just looking to build a career in the fintech space. Roll up your sleeves. I love that. I love that. That's awesome. Cool. Well, listen, thank you so much, Itzi, for, for coming on the podcast. It's been a really good question. I hope, uh, hope many young, aspiring entrepreneurs have been listening in because it's been really, really interesting. Wonderful. Thank you, thank you Joshua. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please like or comment on social media, or even consider leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast, or you can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium, at Wharton Fintech. 
And there you can find interviews, articles, and so much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Saria. And until next time, I'm your host, Josh Benedivo. Thank you.